Your ears do not deceive you. You've just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cryptid Creator Corner podcast. I'm Byron O'Neill, your host for today's show, and I'm really excited because I have a very special guest joining me. I've wanted to highlight one of the often overlooked but critically important roles in comics creation for some time now, that of the editor. So I reached out to Daniel Chabon, senior editor at Dark Horse Comics, to hopefully help me do a little bit of that and talk about some of the incredible work Dark Horse has been promoting recently, because frankly, I've just been blown away by it. So Daniel, thanks for coming on the show today and chatting with me. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, you've worked in the past and are working on currently some of the biggest properties in the medium, Black Hammer, Umbrella Academy, Harrow County, American Gods, Margaret Atwood's Angel Catberg. Right now, uh, Blue Book, Minor Threats. I could go on, but like, damn. So <laughs> I wanted to peel back the curtain a little bit on what Daniel, the editor, does. So what is what does your typical day look like if, if such a thing even exists? Um, uh, what a comic book editor does is sometimes... I, I've, I've been at Dark Horse for uh, close to 15 years now and trying to explain what a comic book editor does has always been a little bit challenging. Um, in a nutshell, you are a project manager. You're, you're just juggling a bunch of different projects at different stages. Um, but really, uh, you are also just a really close ally to the folks that you're working with, particularly the creators. Um, so lots of different parties, the writers, the artists, the colorists, the letterers, the cover artists, really working with all these different parties to make sure things are being turned in at different stages on time uh, to make sure those books come out as scheduled. And you're doing that uh, times however many different books you're working on at the same time. My average for books in a year tends to be close to uh, around 200 books. Wow. I include single issues, so those add up quickly, but still a lot to juggle. So it's really gotten to a point for me where I'm kind of not able to really see how much I'm working on at the same time just because I'm constantly trying to push things forward and making sure things are being turned in on. Um, but yeah, just really monitoring artwork and scripts as they come in. With scripts, you're you're proofing them and uh, giving notes to the writers. Uh, with the artists, you're making sure it matches the script. Yeah. Um, with the colorist, you're making sure it meets the vision of the rest of the creators. Um, and the letterer, you're proofing those. I mean, you just have a, a role in every part of the creation of the book. And then also with the marketing of it, too. Like, I also write most of the ad copy for the books I work on. Okay. Um, I'm filling out all the different um, criteria for who's working on them. So really communicating the best information for, uh, as an intermediary between um, the creators of the book and then our marketing department so that our marketing department can use that information to properly solicit those books. So there's more to it as well. I can keep going, but it's oh, that that's a lot. I guess. It's a that's lot. A- and it's that for every single dang book you work on. So wow. well, <laughs> what attracts you to kind of a specific project? You know, how much freedom do you have in, in picking what you want to work on? A hundred percent freedom. That's one of the the pros of Dark Horse uh, that I found and why I'm happy there is that I work, everything I work on, I've assigned to myself. I go after pretty much all the books that that I can think of that I work on. Uh, Really nothing I'm on has been assigned. Some folks do work on what they're assigned, um, but it's not mandatory there. So really, uh, I just kind of go after 
creators who've, whose work I've liked reading in the past and um, just kind of fish for pitches and see if they have any interesting stories worth publishing that I'd like to work on. So it's kind of subjective, but it's worked out objectively at the same time. I, I think the proof is in the pudding. And I think objectively, people would say it's going pretty well. So well, thanks. Yeah. Well, are the, are the basic needs of any given project you know, typically the same? So what got me thinking about this was I was reading through the first arc of Blue Book. And there are some unique structural elements kind of to the visuals of it. You know, this reliance on a, a very simple color palette. Um, there was a character frayed kind of thing. Um, I can't recall ever seeing done in that way before. So, like, you know, are the needs the same? And it seems like established creators that would move more units, I'd imagine, could take bigger swings even with, with some of those risks, you know, to mm -hmm. some degree. For sure. Uh, can you repeat the question on that one, though? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe I got too wordy there. You know, are the basic needs of any given project like typically the same? Oh, um, not really. I think each different project has its own challenges. Blue Book was a little more, um, I mean, it was it was sort of a complete book in a way in that uh, it was all previously published on Substack. Yeah. Um, but those were kind of more specifically written for that form in a way. I do think with the indication of eventually being published either as single issues or a uh, straight to graphic novel, but um, those are mostly broken down into uh, 10 page chapters. And so trying to do the detective work of figuring out how to structure those to be either a mini series or ongoing series uh, or OGNs has its own kind of uh, work behind it. So um, and also reproofing all of that too. Um, so I don't, there, there are editors involved um, in the Substack work, but it's always helpful in my end to kind of have another set of eyes looking on that stuff at the same time because everybody can kind of find something along the way. So, um, so yeah, m most different projects each have their own different challenges. Well, I mean, there's, there's also obviously no guarantee that something you fall in love with and think should succeed in the marketplace actually does. Mm -hmm. You know, so are there trends that you tend to look for that help? kind of move that probability needle a little more in the positive direction. For sure. Um, getting a comic book to sell these days is always a challenge. I do think just kind of monitoring um, some of the folks that people are reading is kind of key. So who are the big names right now or, or moderate names? Or if it's not a big name creator, who has a really interesting pitch right now that can kind of speak for itself? Um, but yeah, usually for me, I'm just kind of reading what's available and, and who's selling well and who's really getting a lot of attention on their work. And, um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll read that stuff and then go after those folks usually. So. Yeah. I mean, for me lately, one of the things that that's been tricky, uh, especially even with the crowdfunding space, sort of entering everything more and more and more um, is saturation. Um, yeah. So like, what makes that good comic great? You know, what, what's the what's the elevation point? You know, and as an editor, what helps get it there? Mm -hmm. It's definitely extra work too. If if you're working with a creator who um, hasn't had a lot of work out there, or who or even who hasn't ever been published before, mm -hmm. uh, I've definitely edited some work by some folks who have never been published before. But their their comics or their stories were just really fantastic. That. It, it did kind of help it sell itself. You don't usually get a lot of um, sales that tend to 
uh, be bananas on work like that. But it always it is always really rewarding to be able to go after work by someone who isn't quite a top tier creator yet, just to kind of get them on a a track to get their work out there. Yeah. Um, but then, well, yeah, there is so many books coming out each month that, um, you know, each publisher is kind of cannibalizing each other in a way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the reasons I reached out to you about setting this thing up is, is frankly, Dark Horse's consistency um, mm-hmm. in that space. So more than any other publisher I see in the game right now, y'all are churning out quality across the board, kind of no matter the genre, which to me is super impressive. Um, and when I talk off air to creators too, there hasn't been a single one that hasn't had just completely glowing things to say about Dark Horse as a publisher. Mm-hmm. So that's establishing a culture. So what is making Dark Horse so special? And you know, kind of how are you guys going about about developing that culture? In regards to relationships with creators? Yeah. 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 Um, I think one thing that we can offer is uh, just a friendship and and working with creators. Like, you know, I'm in all honesty, not I'm not a company man. I don't have a loyalty to Dark Horse. I'm very grateful for working here and the treatment that I've gotten here. But the value that I really get is from my uh, relationships with the creators. Um, some of those creators are folks that I grew up reading. So it's really been an honor to have those kind of relationships. One of my favorite creators uh, is Evan Dorkin, who did mm-hmm. Milk and Cheese and uh, Beast of Burden with us. And I'm editing those, but I was reading his books when I was a kid. Milk and Cheese is one of my favorite comics. Um, and I got to work on that collection, and it was a really big honor. And so um, I'm working with those folks as a fanboy and a friend. Uh, and it really is a privilege to be able to be kind of a support system for them, too. And I think that a lot of our other editors have that experience as well, that it's not just work. It's it's an honor and it's a friendship. And we're all colleagues with these with these people and trying to help them uh, get their work out there and uh, and make their work the best it can be for readers. So. Yeah. Well, when I was teaching, it's kind of made me think about this. Um, kind of the focus of of my work was helping people develop their personal style. Mm-hmm. Um, editing is a craft, same as any other creative endeavor. So how does personal style kind of evolve over time as an editor, since I just don't have as much familiarity with it? How does an editor apply a personal style to the... Just- yeah, how do, how do they, they develop that, you know, a foot, is there, is there a footprint, you know, it, or is, or if they're yeah. doing their job, you, you don't even... St- you know, you never even see it, right? It's a good question. I do think every editor has their own style, um, uh, and not just at Dark Horse, of course, but amongst different companies. And you, you hear that um, all those different people's opinions of them just uh, from the creators that they work with. Um, gosh, I don't know how to answer that because I, I don't even know what I would say my own style is. <laughs> I, I guess my own personal style, I would tell you, is a little more hands off. Like when I read a script or when art is turned into me. Um, I always have in the back of my head of like sometimes an editor being a little too controlling or a little too hard or changing the story. There's a lot of horror stories like that out there. Yeah, That's not me. Um, I will absolutely tell a creator what I think about what they're turning in. I'll write notes. I'll give them feedback either on the phone or Zoom or in an email. Um, and I always kind of tell them that when I'm, what I'm telling you is not mandatory. Your comic book, your story is your baby. I want it to be the way that you uh, want to communicate it. 
uh, to the world. But I do want you to know what I think, and you're welcome to veto that if you'd like at the same time. But most of the time, whenever I kind of send out my opinion, it usually um, a creator will usually either apply it or they'll kind of change it a little and we meet somewhere in the middle. And then sometimes we don't agree on something at all. And that's totally fine too. Cause I'm not always right either. Oh yeah. yeah. Sometimes I just have a thought and it comes out, but sometimes I might not necessarily agree with that thought. So there was a series I did um, with Matt Kent called bang. And um, it had these covers that were very close up. And as Wilfredo Torres, who's the artist on that was turning in cover sketches I was kind of second guessing those covers and I was telling them like, I'm not quite sure about this, but if you two are very confident on, on how these look, I'd say go ahead. And they did. And now when I look back on those, I knew I was wrong and it feels good to be wrong um, because I'm not quite sure what the alternative would have been, but they are pretty unique covers. So, and then sometimes I've made a decision that has gone through to print. Um, I've contributed to, some titles of books that now I look back at them and I'm just kind of like, oh, I kind of don't like that title anymore. And I'm the one that came up with that. So yeah, you know, editors can for sure be very wrong. Well, I mean, that, that is the evolution and in, in some extent of, of personal style, you have to make mistakes. Um, the idea is that you learn from those and then you evolve. So for sure. Yeah. Well, one would assume you started as a writer first and then you transitioned sort of into the role of an editor. Um, so kind of what was more attractive about helping other people rather than kind of developing your own work? Um, so background wise, yes, I had done a lot of writing. I uh, got an undergraduate um, in the Midwest in Kansas City, Missouri. I was an English degree, eventually moved from Kansas City, Portland, Oregon to get a master's in writing uh, at Portland State University. Um, I have, we have a writer in my family who's Michael Shabon and, uh, Michael's my older half brother and some of having Michael around at the same time, like I can write and I, I can do some other things, but I don't, sometimes in the back of my head, I just was thinking like, we don't need another writer in the family. <laughs> We're not going to be the Bronte sisters or anything. So, uh, I had worked in a lot of restaurants in Kansas city and was trying to figure out what my professional step was going to be and was getting the uh, master's in writing at Portland state. And that program there was specific to book publishing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just writing classes. So I was taking classes in book design uh, and book editing and uh, production, every kind of wing of a publisher. Sure. And so I got that degree and was at the same time doing an internship at dark horse eventually got hired there and worked my way up. So went from intern to assistant editor to associate editor to editor, editor, and now senior editor. And then in between all that, I also went a little crazy and did law school at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. My research kind of came across that you were doing what night school uh, to get a degree yeah. from Lewis and Clark. Is that right? Yeah. Which is actually not too far from dark course. But so when I was an assistant, um, I would do full time at Dark Horse from 8.30 to kind of 4.30. And I'd have to kind of sneak out just a little bit early so I could make the law school classes on time because those started at 5. And then I would do that from 5 to 10 p.m., get home and then read 100 pages a night and do that for four years. And wow. That was rough. Wow. Well, 
the the law degree. So I, I saw somewhere, you know, kind of the a little bit of the background on on your motivation. And um, you know, I I spent 15 years in the the music industry. Um, so I cool. saw uh, in supporting roles, nobody ever wants to see me sing or or try to play something. Um, but we kind of live in this era of, uh, of hashtag comics broke me, and you see all these like heartbreaking accounts of creators and what yeah. they've gone through. Um, I saw the same thing in the music business. Um, so kind of what, what prompted that, that motivation to, to go to law school, to help people, to help understand contractual law, that kind of thing. Um, you know, my, the thesis I was working on over at Lewis and Clark too, was specific to the Jack Kirby estate. And in that time, it was a live litigation between the family and, and, uh, Marvel. And they ended up settling like a month after I started working on that paper. So I had to change it quickly, but it was always kind of in the back of my mind um, about creator relationships and IP and uh, owning the work that you write. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and that's important to me. All the books that I work on um, are mostly creator own. I might have one license thing here or there just to have a fun new challenge. But I really like working on books where creators own what they work on. Um, it's more fun. It's more creative. Um, and it's it's what creators deserve. Um, this is an industry that has a long history of taking copyright and ownership of other people's creations. And I thought that uh, as kind of an intermediary between the publisher and the creator, that I could be someone that could really work with creators on getting the best kind of deals that they could from a publisher. And so I thought that um, my education at, at Lewis and Clark, that could help me uh, have a lot more confidence in contracts, which it did. Uh, our in-house attorney actually went to Lewis and Clark as well. We had the same advisor. Okay. Well, I think that when I started at Dark Horse, um, my understanding of law and, and contracts, even communicating to lawyers was very limited and maybe a bit shy. And now... Um, you know, I don't really need to go to our lawyer that much beyond just asking him to draft a contract and this is what you need to put in it. And because mm -hmm. um, I'm already working out the terms with the creators and, are, and explaining everything I can and uh, encouraging them to ask questions and nothing, there's nothing shady in there. And uh, I encourage them to have lawyers look at contracts, just really making sure that whoever I'm working with really has an understanding that no one's trying to slip something in there to, to get you like, this is a good relationship. Yeah. And and one cool thing I think about Dark Horse too is that um you know they're not hoarding uh comics or characters there and preventing uh creators from being able to to not leave with their work like in an Alan Moore Watchmen thing. Mm -hmm. like, we're not keeping things in print and preventing people from leaving. Like if you're unhappy at Dark Horse um, you can leave. And so that had happened in the past with the goon, you know, Soggy Yojembo. It's kind of in the role of the editor to keep those relationships going and happy. And if they, if they don't, then they leave. And now both of those parties have come back to Dark Horse. So it presents a nice challenge and um, a nice duty, I think, for for editors and the publisher that um, we need to maintain those relationships. And if we don't, they, they can leave. And I think that's the right way to do it because ultimately we provide a service and that's to the creators. Okay. It seems like a good spot to take a quick break. 
Hey, y'all. Jimmy recently scored me a signed, personalized copy of Hallow's Eve from Erica Schultz after our interview. You've probably had this problem, too. I got this great book. Now, how did I display this thing? Well, I discovered this great product from Crafty Comics that lets you showcase your treasured comics and they even have options for already slab books too. I got their flex frame, which is amazing as you can customize the backing and it even has interchangeable watercolors to coordinate with your space. I opted for neutral gray to match the blue in my room. You can hang portrait or landscape and it comes with a template to make it easy to ensure that you get it exactly where you want it. To my surprise, my wife, who tolerates my comic stuff, was actually impressed with the overall quality and look. Win! So if you're looking for the perfect solution to showcase your own collection, visit craftycomics.com online. That's crafty with an I. Use the discount code YETI5 and get 5% off your order. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I mean, it's a super interesting role kind of as that liaison between creator and and publisher um you know let's say i'm coming to you with a pitch i i'm not just just to be clear um but what what advice are you giving me uh it, can you be more specific like just in regard to story or just with like trying to get it through yeah oh, i mean like i'm a novice let's say i have the, the like what i think is is the the best idea ever um this is this is my comics baby um and you've read through the script and okay yeah byron i think you you've got something here right so let's let's work on on developing it from from a i'm curious about the sort of the legal standpoint you know like what are what are the next steps because i have no frame of reference yeah i mean there's not really from my point of view and on my end there isn't really any big legal challenges like in a dark horse contract you know there's a set term for how many years or or less that we want to negotiate publishing your books. And that's all negotiable. Like okay. I, there's not really anything that's going to be too difficult. Um, we don't take copyright. Um, and that's, I'm very against that kind of a thing. Um, and uh, there's still publishers out there right now where, you know, they, they put, they project, uh, a look on online and in public that they do create our own. And then you open up the book and in the copyright, it's copyrighted to that publisher or that imprint of the publisher. And so it's difficult to really say you're very uh, pro creator own when you're actually taking other people's creations. Um, and Dark Horse doesn't do that. And um, I make sure that's pretty clear. Um, so really when it comes to any kind of legalese or um or things like that i just encourage creators who are pitching me to ask questions don't be shy about it mm -hmm. um, it's my job to explain everything and um, to be their ally because again like i'm not i'm not a company man i don't uh it doesn't serve me to have that role right um but uh, the most fulfilling part of this job is when you work on a comic book with a team and then one day you show show up to work and the printed advance is there and that's really the fulfilling part and so um, having good experiences with the folks that you work with on these books is the number one thing are there are there different things that different people should be looking for in an editor um like for for me right um i got out of the music business made a poor career choice to be a professional artist um 
there for me, I made a very strong separation between this is my commercial work, which I really don't care after you buy it, what you do with it. And here is my personal work. And I, I have always maintained a very, very strong, uncompromising line on those two things. So I'm just able to separate. So my needs might be very different than somebody else who who, who is coming in. So is is there something that is there a, a universal, I guess, if you will, you know, I'm looking for an editor, what should I be looking for? Is like, or is the ally that you've been referencing a lot of, you know, is that um, it? I, I bet everyone's I bet every creator probably has their own needs for someone to work with. And hopefully, you know, they usually find that person. I do know some creators that have had challenges with other editors. I think one reason why some folks may like to work with me is I tend to get back to folks right away. Um, I'm one of those inbox zero people, even though when I wake up in the morning, there's like 50 emails. Well, it's in my brain and my OCD-ness to have to get back to those people right away because I really don't like people waiting on me. Um, It's just a, a weird thing about me. And so I think what I have heard other people say they like about me is that I do get back to them right away. Um, I might not get back to them with all the information they need, but I will try to give them um, an idea of when they will get what they need, uh, which is probably another uh, example of why I can work on the quantity of books that I do is just I need to kind of stop doing what I'm doing and get an errand done or get back to someone. And so it's just in my nature. I think so. Some folks, I think, do appreciate having someone who can. uh, get back to them right away or that they can reach out to at any point. So there's some creators that have my cell phone number. I don't give it away to everybody. Otherwise I'm in trouble, but um, some people like to communicate through text. Some like to call, some like to zoom. Um, I try to meet the needs of everyone I work with and, uh, and accommodate. And um, I think those are helpful traits uh, to have good relationships with who you work with. Um, and I'm sure um, every editor has their own style um, and their own uh, strengths in that in that direction. I mean, you obviously have to read a lot of comics and comic scripts. So, I mean, do you have time to do like leisure reading? You know, outside the bubble of consideration for for a project? Or? A little bit, yeah. Uh, more so these days. The law school days, no. Uh, those days, I was actually reading a lot of manga because uh, you could read it so quickly. And so the law cases, yeah, it'd be like a hundred pages a night and it's all text and you have to read it twice. Cause you have to highlight the stuff that's important the first time you read it. And the second time you're reading the highlighted stuff. And sometimes I would highlight a whole page wow. <laughs> uh, cause you're going to get cold called the next day in class. Um, manga was really great at that time because you could read a whole book and sometimes 10 to 20 minutes and it felt really good. Leisure reading these days. Um, Gosh, I'm not reading a lot of comics right now. I'm I am reading uh, World Tree and everything else that uh, James Tynan has been writing, and um, a lot of other folks I've been working with. Um, outside of that, um, it's been some leisure prose books. Um, some of those. Uh, it's a weird one to answer. Do you know those DK books? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll read some of those just because I like to get like a lot of facts at the same time. And those are fun and well-designed and sometimes very inspiring for if I ever work on like an art book. Yeah. So I've been reading some of those. Um, 
So uh, it's kind of a mix of things, but time is an issue. And I do yeah. find these days as I get older, just I'll start reading a book at night and then I'll get very sleepy. And then 10 minutes in the book, I'm going to sleep. And that happened last night. So you're not alone. That's my cueing, though. I read every night before bed. I just actually started um, getting more into manga. So um, it was The Witch's Hat that I, I started that that series. Oh, cool. Yeah, I haven't yeah. Heard, I've heard good things. It's excellent. I was, cool. I was really, really impressed. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, it's it's random. Sometimes it's 10 pages. Sometimes it's 150 pages and then I'm out. Well, it's always what you- I do before bed. If you need any good ones to read after that, I always recommend Pluto by uh, Naegu Urasawa. Okay. Um, it's only six volumes, so not a huge commitment. Um, very good sci-fi. Uh, and there's a um, there's a cartoon series coming up on Netflix of it, too. So. Okay. Let's yeah, start. everybody was saying the Shaman King was like up my alley, and that's what I should read next, too. Yeah, so. yeah there's a lot out there. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, I was overwhelmed. You know, I was like, uh, okay, I'm going to pick two or three things and, uh, hopefully I, I did well. Um, well, did you, you mentioned milk and cheese. Did you, did you have a light bulb book? I mean, first, did you grow up reading comics and was there one that, that had that trigger moment for you that was like, holy shit, this is what comics can be, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I did grow up reading comics. Uh, I, I, uh, lived in Washington DC when I was a kid. And um, my dad uh, used to take us to comic book stores once a week. Um, he, he was a big consumer of books and comics because um, we would go to bookstores twice a week and he would always buy stuff. And so we would go to the comic shop uh, every week to get stuff and he would buy me single issues. Um, it was a great time to grow up and get stuff. This is like the early 90s. So mm-hmm. the McFarlane stuff coming out at the same time. Um, he was getting me old issues of Spider-Man. But the books that I was really learning to read with, um, I don't remember him necessarily buying them specifically for me. He was buying them for himself, but then handing them off to me uh, were the old school reprints of EC Comics. Yeah. Um, I was not a censored kid. Okay. So, uh, I was. <laughs> and, yeah. They, and they're very graphic to this day. And very messed up twists at the end, but I loved them. And so I basically learned to read through the old school EC Comics books. And I loved the um, HBO show back in the day, too, which still kind of holds up. Um, And uh, come to today, too, I uh, ended up uh, editing um, archive versions of those books uh, for Dark Horse uh, for several years. And that was a really big honor because those are the books that got me into reading. So, um, so yeah, uh, I was reading a lot of single issue comics as a kid and was collecting too. And in Washington, DC, uh, there was also usually like a small comics convention or a card convention, uh, like once or twice, uh, a week that my dad would always take us to. And so we'd always go around those. They were never crowded back in the day. Uh, so there was all this space and, um, and we would just start a comic collection. And so those, what I, those are what I was reading and bagging and boarding and collecting. Um, and then high school, I was reading mostly vertigo stuff. Yeah. Those are the books that really, uh, were my cup of tea and really getting me to like, think about the story differently reading, um, 
any of the Swamp Thing books or uh, Animal Man, um, yeah. particularly Sandman. Sandman was the the big game changer for me, and um, and just storytelling and comic books. So I yeah. love. It was that Delaney era of uh, Hellblazer for me. Yeah, yeah, it was just like whoa. Yeah, those are wonderful. I love those, and then um, the Garth uh, uh, NS run, of course, too. Yeah. So. Well, is there anything you got uh, kind of coming out in the near future you want to take a moment to pitch? I know that uh, Minor Threats has a spinoff that, that's coming out pretty soon. Yeah, that was announced. That's the alternates. Um, that one uh, has a new set of characters that we're following, uh, okay. created by um, Pat Oswalt and Jordan Blum. And then also Tim Seeley is on board co-writing, and he's created a lot of those characters as well. Um, and then the art is by Tess Fowler and Christopher Mitten. Awesome series. Really excited about that. And hopefully there'll be some more uh, minor threats related series along the way um, in the future. Uh, and a lot of that team will be at San Diego Comic-Con as well, promoting those books. Um, other things I have coming up, um, I am working on the Richard Corbin line at Dark Horse. Yeah. Uh, those are a big honor for me. I was working with Richard in the last couple of years of his life on some of the Hellboy books he was on. Um, and so these are, some of these books are books that have been out of print for decades and are now finally coming into print. So murky world was the first one. That one's already out. And then Den, I'm not sure if Den's out just yet. It's about to come out, but that's, it's a book that hasn't been in print since the early eighties, I think. And that's his big masterpiece, completely restored art by Jose Villarubia, um, and re-lettered by Nate Picos. It looks oh, nice. beautiful. Yeah. It's the. Uh, Jose knows this stuff so much better than I do. He's the perfect person to be working on it. Um, but I do think I have the old, I have a few old editions of Den here. And I think this is the the best looking uh, versions of these books in print. They look wonderful. So those are coming up that I'm really excited about. There's more Black Hammer uh, by Jeff Lemire. Um, there's a lot of different minis that we're talking about right now. Um, we just came out with uh, Christopher Chaos by James Tynan and Tate Brombell. Nice at Goodheart. That's a wonderful series that was launched um, last month for Pride Month. Uh, a really fun uh, kind of a mad science horror series. Um, and that one's an ongoing. Um, I got a lot cooking. I mean, I could <laughs> go down a list. Is there any that you're kind of excited about? I, I'm excited about Christopher Chaos. I mean, I got a chance to talk to Tate about it, you know, a couple of weeks ago, specific to Pride. And I think that's a really cool book. I mean, it's fun being a neurodivergent myself and seeing a neurodivergent character and, you know, looking for more of that type of diversity in comics. That was kind yeah. of refreshing. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a chance to actually talk to Tate specifically about that. So, so that was really, really nice. And Great. Um, yeah, yeah. And the Corbin stuff, I think, is. Is really cool the the art restoration aspect of it. I'm a little fascinated about. I, I don't know if you you have a lot of knowledge as to how that works, but like the, I know that that um, coming from a um, a printing background, you know, like I do, I did a lot of printing um, for my work and stuff, and so you're going from the these legacy colors. So I'm just curious, you, you know, with the restoration, how much tonality, you know. I could see a lot of depth that that's added, not necessarily the color changing. This is how I'm picturing it in my, my head anyway. 
It's hard to articulate and I don't even have a full understanding of it. Okay. I just know that when it turn, gets turned in, it looks great. And when comparing it to the older versions, I mean, no one's trying to do a big change or to com- or do an overhaul. It's really trying to achieve what um, previous publishers in the 70s and 80s couldn't accomplish. If something right. was too dark, things get lost in them. And, and some of the darker pages or more pops up, like just yeah. trying to avoid any kind of errors that occurred in the past and really getting what Richard Corbin's original vision, um, what it looked like to him when he was illustrating it to really pop on the page in the end. I think that's the goal. And Jose really knows that uh, like the back of his hand, because he worked very closely uh, with Richard for so long. So. Um, oh, the other one I was going to say, um, we mentioned it kind of uh, beforehand before we started was the Lonesome Hunter. So I always want to give a chance to for you to talk about Tyler a little bit there. So. Yeah. And so the first issue came out today, July 12th. Uh, yeah. So um, this is the follow-up series uh, to the last arc. Uh, it's uh, it's all Tyler. He's writing it and, and painting it, uh, which is a bit more unusual uh, these days. He's hand painting it. It's not on an iPad or anything. Um, and, uh, he letters it and, um, it's a, it's a wonderful experience. It's a wonderful series. Uh, this, this arc is more of a, a road trip story with the old man in the story and the young girl and, uh, and they're on the run from all these kind of supernatural forces. Uh, but I'd, I'd highly encourage your listeners if they're fans of maybe say like preacher, um, or just some general fantasy horror stories to to kind of hunt this one down. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. And and when we were chatting about it, um, I was asking specific questions about. This is really curious to me how the labor that is involved to do all that stuff is incredible. Yes. Yeah, you can actually go onto YouTube, or it might be on Tyler's website as as well. But he has a lot of videos, and I think he did some for Lonesome, Lonesome Hunters. Um, but he also did him for Harrow County, his horror series with Colin Bunn, where he shows the process of the artwork. And uh, it really, I encourage folks to go to watch those because it really shows how much time and labor is involved in drawing a page. Because um, he'll show, uh, I do know, at least for the Harrow County pages, he'll show whole videos of him uh, penciling a double page spread or doing the line art for it, and then eventually doing the watercolors for it. and just. Um, it takes a really long time to uh, to draw a page in comic books. So yeah, way more than people think when they look through and they read a page in seven seconds or whatever. yeah, I know that's the thing because you can read so quickly and go through the sequentials. So um, for someone else, uh, you know, the artist, it can take a whole day to do one of those or more. Yeah. Well, for a while now, I've wrapped up all my interviews talking about the hustle of comics. You know, kind of asking guests about advice along those lines but kind of reading the room i'm changing up and focusing more on advice about how to address holistic health you know kind of in the medium as creators um i know you're not a therapist um although imagine you probably feel like one at times but you know um you might have an interesting lens here so how can creators kind of make sure to balance their their mental physical and emotional health in the modern comics climate uh Big question. Great question. Uh, don't be on social media too much because that's unhealthy for all of us. Yeah. 
Uh, so particularly probably as I, I'm going to say Twitter and then I'll get banned on Twitter. But uh, I, I, you know, not, not putting everything into your work at the same time, giving yourself the breaks you deserve, go out and try a nice restaurant, have a drink. Uh, if you play an instrument, I play guitar a little bit. Uh, I've been bad recently about trying to, to do it because I have to do it in the basement. My dog will bark at me if I do it up here. Yeah. But really trying to give yourself breaks from your job when you can, because if you put everything into your job, you're just going to be stressed out 24 seven. I found myself in that uh, for a long time when I was just working full time and then doing school at night and having no breaks. And, uh, and yeah, it is really rewarding to be able to just have time off and turn your brain off. And those are valuable moments. So listening to a podcast, uh, uh, just reading a book, going on walks, going on walks is a, is a big deal. So um, just really finding simple things outside of your job to kind of be the best therapy for yourself. Well, um, I wanted to ask, is uh, your your Twitter header, speaking of Twitter, um, is, is that a Shibu Inu? You were just talking about your dog. Oh, and I yeah. always always want to give people a chance to gush about their fur babies as long as they're not cats. Uh, is this Shiba Inu? Do you want me to go get her? I can find her real quick. Sure. Why not? One sec. So, Comic book podcast, so we need a cameo. I know. Well, for those listening, it's an adorable looking Shibu. You know, she she's adorable. My goodness, she is sleepy and heavy. This is Zell, and Zell had previously made an appearance in Beast of Burden. Okay. The uh, Evan Dorkin horror pet series. Yeah. So. Very nice. He's my little Shib. Well, uh, where can people find you online? We just talked about Twitter. Yeah, so not too shabby uh, on Twitter and uh, same on Instagram. That's kind of it right now. So, and as as you just said, that that's probably enough. Yeah. All right. Well, Daniel, I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with me today, and it's it's been pleasantly enlightening. I got cool. to learn more about editing. So excellent. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, this is Brian O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptic Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now 